Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. We, well, my son was supposed to be in tennis and soccer camp this week, but it was shut down because of the huge smoke cloud that came down from Canada. Oh, no. They put them in a city camp facility and had them watch movies. <laughs> that was that was plan B. <laughs> it's like, we didn't pay for screen camp. We paid for sports camp and you should have had a plan B. You know, what, what if it had rained? But anyway, the whole thing was a complete mess. But for the next four weeks, my son and daughter are going to be in theater camp, which hopefully will be less affected by smoke clouds. We are looking forward to their big show. So which meant that we didn't do summer baseball with my son. And he's super into baseball right now, but he's going right. to do fall baseball. OK, great. My daughter. Well, she's near the end of her swim season. And then, yeah, she just started sort of an internship sort of thing with the city planner or something like that for our city. Mm -hmm. Other than theater, that's my daughter's other real passion. City planning? Yes. Okay. Urban design, basically. Okay. She's been weirdly fascinated by this since she was a toddler. When she was very, very little, we went to the Cooper Hewitt Museum. There was an installation about some urban design work, and she, at the age of like three or whatever, was just fascinated. She just sat there and watched the entire thing, and then it started back over again, and she was still watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so right. this has been this has been an interest of hers since early early on uh and she really did seem to enjoy her time there today so we will see where that goes right. anyway have you seen the new spider-man movie i have so i was in a rare group i was not a big fan of the first one uh, everybody loved the first one i now just refer to the two movies as spider-man preposition the spider-verse one and spider-man preposition the spider-verse two because i can't tell the titles part <laughs> And right. next year we'll have Spider-Man Preposition and Spider-Verse 3. So I rewatched the first one in preparation for the second one with my family this time. And I liked it more than I had the first time. And I liked the second one a lot. I really thought I liked more than the first one. And I thought it specifically dealt with some of the problems of the first one. And mm -hmm. that it answered some of the questions that were annoying me in the first one. And I'm like, oh, OK, I can see what you're doing now. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Did you like it? I thought it was fantastic. I really felt emotionally invested in the story. Other people have pointed out that it probably didn't need to be two and a half hours long, but <laughs> I enjoyed it the entire time. I did not feel like it was a two and a half hour long movie. My daughter was absolutely incensed by their choice of how to end the movie. <laughs> like, wait, what? we're in the... The reason she was so incensed by that is because she was enjoying it so much and didn't want to have to wait another year and a half or whatever to get the end of it. I am looking forward to Spider-Man preposition, the Spider-Verse 3. Meanwhile, also, have you seen any of Secret Invasion yet? I have not. How is it? I can't quite make up my mind on it overall at the moment. I know that once again, my daughter was incensed by something that happened in the first episode. I will not say what it is, but she is not let it go. And it goes on a periodic rants about it. It's certainly, you know, in the 
Falcon in the Winter Soldier corner of the Marvel Universe. Darker, grimmer, conspiracy-minded. We will see how it ends up playing out. You're not telling me on it if you're telling me it's, it's in the Falcon and Winter Soldier corner of the universe. That's, um, uh, that's not my corner of the universe. I have enjoyed what they've done with the scrolls so far, so I'm looking forward to watching it. Okay, let's go ahead and get into the things we're going to get into. This time, I am taking the first one, so I'm doing Amazing Spider-Man. So we should explain that we are doing September 1965. Indeed, we are doing September of 1965. All pop art productions, 12 cents. Yes, uh, last month, only some of them were identified as pop art productions. This time, all eight comics have pop art productions written on the cover. We're trying to reach out to artsier crowds here. And also, speaking of reaching out to artsier crowds, this is a rather sophisticated and artsy cover. Uh, One which has been referenced many, many times over the years. So we have the Molten Man, who is this sort of golden, glowing man who's in the shadows. So you see his golden highlights, but he's still largely in black shadow. And in the foreground, we have Spider-Man, completely silhouetted except for some red lines that do the web and the outline of the spider on his back and that's pretty much it but it just sort of implies the position of lots of his figure here and it's quite a bold decision to make and i think it turned out wonderfully and that's one of the reasons why it keeps on being referenced for uh decades on end Oh, yeah. This is one of Dicko's very best Spider-Man covers. You know, it's interesting that the Molten Man, the whole time I was growing up and I was reading Molten Man comics, he was on fire. He looked like this. He had gold skin, but there were flames coming off of it. It's always strange to me to read this first issue, and he is in no way a fiery character. He is molten in that he has been covered with molten metal, but the molten metal is now seemingly cool to the touch. He is in no way hot or flaming or anything like that. So that's always strange to me when I read this issue. That, that Yes, in this initial appearance, I think the thought was that it is molten the same way that mercury is molten at room temperature. Yeah. I think some later writers were like, dude, this is ridiculous. He's called the Molten Man. He should look like he's molten metal. So let's go ahead and give him some, some heat. Anyway, Um, So I should say that this is the last great Ditko character. Well, one could say that we've already had the last great Ditko character. It depends on whether you not think the Molten Man is great. But certainly there has been diminishing returns for a while now. You could say that Craven was the last great Ditko character if you don't want to count Scorpion. If you do want to count Scorpion, you could say he was the last great Ditko character. Or if you want to be very generous and count Molten Man, you could say this is the last great Ditko character. But I think we can all agree it's all downhill from here. And clearly you have forgotten both the looter and a guy called Joe. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) As as everybody has. Everybody's forgotten them. Those are not terrible comics, but this is the last Dicko creation that goes on to be a regular part of Spider-Man's Rogue's Gallery. And it's a shame that he has stopped creating characters, but it's nice that he gives us one last memorable character who did sort of make it into the MCU and that there was a character who was referred to as the Molten Man in Spider-Man Far From Home. Oh, I don't think I uh, realized that. He fights a giant lava monster and somebody calls it the Molten Man. Ah, 
Okay. Yes, we begin with a beautiful splash page. On the first story page, the principal is apologizing to Peter for accusing him of starting that fight with Flash, because of course, Flash suddenly decided to be honorable about things and essentially take the fall. But then Liz is really upset with him, or seems to be, and is not talking to him. He's trying to figure out why that is. Meanwhile, Flash sees him talking to her, and he's getting all jealous once again. I point out in my books that a good way to show a character is changing is to have them do something that it seemed like they would never do. She says, I'm sorry, Peter, I haven't time to talk now. And he thinks, Peter, she's never called me that before. It's always been Petey. So this is a good way of showing her character changing. So, so I when that. Pete is trying to catch up with Liz Allen, Pete thinks, there's Liz Hilton. I'll bet she had something to do with Flash getting me off the hook. Okay, Hilton is not a name that we've seen anywhere in all of this. No, it's not like getting Betty Branch and Betty Ross mixed up or something. This is right. Liz, where on earth did he get Liz Hilton from? And oh, Stan, get an editor. You, <laughs> he you is the editor. <laughs> you can't write and edit the books yourself, dude. Why, why people have editors. He can and he does. So I should say that in this issue, I was rereading it. And I'm like going, oh, right, Liz Allen's upset with Peter, I don't remember why. And I'm like, oh, of course, she's upset about her uncle, who is the Molten Man. The fact that there's something going on in her personal life that will involve her uncle, the Molten Man, and that's why she's upset. In fact, we get through this entire issue, which has a lot of both Liz Allen and the Molten Man in it, without it ever being mentioned that Liz Allen's uncle is the Molten Man, which it turns out was added years later. Yeah, I did not remember that at all. So, <laughs> yeah, interesting. So let me ask you a question. You know, as you said earlier, the quote-unquote integration of the Marvel Universe in the 60s sense of the term has pretty much gotten into full swing at this point. So going ahead and uh, talking about every incident of it is starting to be a little bit weird. But I do want to ask you, how are the Black characters in this book colored in the originals? I guess they're kind of brownish, more so than grayish. Okay, yeah, same here. Uh, It looks like they've finally come up with a color that more closely represents the actual skin color of African Americans, rather than the ashy sort of look that they usually have. Yes, that's interesting. Yes, we have finally won the war on ashiness in the Marvel Universe here. But of course, the other thing that comes up on this page is that and it's also mentioned on the cover, is that they're about to graduate. It's a huge issue in terms of establishing that in the Marvel Universe, there will be big changes to the status quo. Of course, we're about to have Sue and Reed married, so that's about to be the other big one. But this is huge that you know this character and Marvel will later regret this. Marvel <laughs> will go like, oh, maybe we should have had Peter be a high school character. And indeed, every time they have relaunched the Spider-Man movies, they've returned him to high school, even though originally in the very first Spider-Man movie, he went ahead and graduated high school and went on to college within that first movie. Later, when they tried to do the let's reboot our characters in the Ultimate Universe, they decided he had to stay in high school. So that comic went on for with Peter Parker issues for like 150 issues. And he never, I don't even think he ever even got out of 10th grade in that comic because (laughs) they were like, we have made mistakes with Peter. He never should have graduated. I love that Peter graduates in this issue. I love that Peter was a character who didn't quite age in real time, but he almost aged in, he aged in about half real time for a long time. I think it is great to have him graduate. And it's just fascinating that, you know, once Ditko is given full control of the potting, we should point out that Ditko gets full potting credit again, as he will for the rest of this book. 
that Dicko is like, let's actually have this guy's life grow and change. I know I've heard that there is disagreement between Ditko and Lee on whether he should stay in high school forever or whether he should age and change. The story that I heard was that Ditko said, no, this is a high school character. And Lee said, no, 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 we've got to you know, have him graduate, which seems odd. It seems like it would be the other way around. So I don't know if something got mixed up in the retelling, but all this is hearsay anyway. Especially because he graduates once Dicko becomes the sole potter of the book. That, True. That'd be interesting if it's coming from Lee. Yeah. I, th- I may have heard something like that. I may have heard Dicko having regrets. I'm not sure that Dicko was overruled on whether or not he should graduate. I think I've heard that maybe Dicko just regretted it later, as Marvel itself seems to have regretted it later and going like, oh, maybe the character lost something when it stopped being a high school character. But I can tell you it got utterly ridiculous in the Ultimate Spider-Man comics when, like at one point, he becomes Spider-Man and then he becomes Hollywood makes a movie about him. Then they reveal that he is only been Spider-Man for like a month. And it's like, <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys know anything about Hollywood movies, but uh, they don't get made and released within a month. Okay, we're still on page three, so <laughs> I think that I need to get a move on here. Pete is going by Smythe's office, who created the Spider Slayer machine, because he is trying to get back his actual Spider-Man costume, which Smythe had confiscated. Because Smythe has the uh, spider-sensing robot, Pete realizes that he needs to have some sort of a cover, so he brings a jar of spiders with him, ostensibly to be used in research, but that gives him an excuse as to why the spider-detecting machine attacked him. Uh, because of the jar of spiders, that's it. Pete is able to find his actual uniform and swaps it out for his crappy costume company uniform. So... Mission accomplished, right? But then, as Pete is leaving, he sees this incident where Smythe is saying to the assistant who's pushing him out of the way, but you can't walk out on me now. I supplied all the money, all the equipment. The whole idea was mine. And then the assistant says, so what? We worked on it together, didn't we? I'm taking my share and selling it to the highest bidder, and you can't stop me. And the invention is this liquid metal alloy. I mentioned on some of our social media stuff that this really strikes me as a very Anne Randian sort of plot device here, that you have the creative genius who is making progress and, uh, you know, advancing mankind. And then you have the lowly laborer who actually brings absolutely nothing of value to the equation, who is just trying to steal and loot the value that is created by his betters. Once again, not saying that that is my take on things, saying that that is uh, the Randian take on things and what seems to me to be coming out here. I got a fair amount of pushback on that from some folks online, but that's fine. They can disagree. He gets away with the uh, metal stuff, but then it breaks and coats his body. It soaks into him, and then he's now golden, and he's walking out of the lab into the street. Pete is able to extricate himself from the Spider Slayer, which had once again gotten him. Uh, He tries to follow the guy out and see what's going on. Raxton, that's the name of the molten man here. Raxton is crossing the street all absentmindedly like, what happened to me? And a motorist honks at him. He gets angry and smashes the motorist's car. So he then realizes, wow, this metal must have made me super strong. Also, in terms of Lee trying to soften how many people would die in these various things, uh, on page eight, panel three, as 
Raxton has smashed this car and is now flipping it over, says, ha, that frightened fool leaped out of his car and ran off. Let him go. They can all go. When, you know, we did not see him jump out of his car. He clearly just died in that car. (laughs) But, you know, that's one of the things Lee brings to this here is like, no, no, no. No, no, no. So Spider-Man is trying to follow the guy, trying to find where he is. He finally gets to, I think he just gets a seedy motel and is trying to figure out what to do next. Spider-Man is able to follow him. They get into a fight. It's once again, a really fun fight. I looked it up. Uh, Liz Allen is the Molten Man's stepsister. This is revealed in issue 132. Sorry. Interesting. Okay. So they have a knockdown drag out fight. Again, wonderful Ditko interaction with the environment. In this case, it's the CD motel or his apartment or whatever it is, this building that they're in. Uh, We see that uh, Spider-Man's web does not stick to the Molten Man. Uh, We do have one sort of ridiculous panel, which I've also posted on our socials. On page 13, panel four, the Molten Man is simultaneously giving a left hook and a left kick at the same time to Spider-Man, which just does not work. It wouldn't work in real <laughs> life, and it does not work in the panel either. <laughs> so. Especially if you're kicked by a molten toe at the same time. Yes. I should say, one interesting thing about the way this issue is potted is that usually, and again, this was back when Lee was getting credit on the potting, they would very awkwardly have Spider-Man fight the villain, usually on like pages 8, 9, and 10, and then the fight would break up for a while, sometimes very lamely when the villain would go like, I could defeat you now, but instead I would defeat you tomorrow. And then the villain would walk away and then they would fight again on pages like 15, 16, 17. In this issue, that doesn't happen. They just have a big old fight that just goes on and on and on and then wraps up around page 15 or so. And then that leaves plenty of room for graduation. I like this a lot that they just have one big fight and they don't contrive having two separate fights between the hero and the villain. Yeah. Anyway, they've continued to fall down the stairs and are now basically in the cellar of this building. Spider-Man knocks out the light bulb because his spidey sense can still help him. So this is, you know, what's being referenced on the cover with that very dark cover. Spider-Man then essentially hogties the Molten Man. Or is that considered hog tying one way or the other? He uh, he ties up his hands and feet, but the, the molten man can still deliver a beating while he's tied up like that. And he proceeds to do so until the cops show up and Spider-Man feels he can leave this guy to cops. So we have May getting ready to send Petey off to uh, his graduation. We see the graduation ceremony here, and we find out that Peter Parker has won an all-expenses scholarship to Empire State University. Flash Thompson, meanwhile, has won the athletic scholarship, which also gives a free ride to Empire State University. Uh, Empire State University will remain a long-standing academic institution in New York City. So it's basically their stand-in for NYU. So that means that both Pete and Flash are going to be going to the same college here. (laughs) Yes. J. Jonah Jameson is at the graduation. So he comes up for a speech. We see a huge smile on his face for a couple of panels, and he always just looks utterly horrible when he's smiling. (laughs) Ditko is really able to pull that off nicely to be like, oh yeah, he's smiling very warmly and it looks awfully, it looks absolutely awful. But then JJ is 
you know, worried that Pete is starting to sell his pictures to other publishers. So he's trying to ingratiate himself with both Peter and his aunt. So he's sort of like flirting with Aunt May here and once again, just looking (laughs) utterly terrible with this huge grin on his face. Peter snags Liz at the end of the ceremony and she has a very serious talk with him. And she says, sorry, I've been treating you the way I have over the last few days. I really did fall for you. I really have true feelings for you, but we're leaving high school. We're not going to be going to the same college or anything like that. So this is goodbye. And I didn't want to make it hurt too much. Yeah. Which is, you know, once again, a pretty sophisticated emotional scene for comics of this era. Yes. Yeah, this is a momentous moment. One might even say monumentous. The impression I've gotten, some of this I'm, I'm getting from Douglas Wolk's book, when we had the Douglas Wolk episode a while ago, essentially that the Marvel Universe seemed to move in real time up until about the birth of Franklin Richards. Yeah. There are even people to this day, now that the Marvel Universe has been going for more than 60 years, who are like, there's like a four to one thing and that Franklin Richards in the comics these days is shown as being like 16 or so, and that it all still makes sense. But, you know, you would have to really stretch things out. But at this point, things are moving along and we are getting this guy graduating. And yeah, it's absolutely fascinating that they're like, we're going to contrive to have him and Flash still be in school together because Flash is an essential part of his supporting cast, but Liz isn't. And Liz just goes. She is just kicked out. And also Betty Brandt doesn't show up for graduation here because she is still pissed at Peter. So Peter is losing just about everybody. And Liz says, oh, you always liked Betty Brandt more than me. You liked Mary Jane Watson more than me. Of course, she you know, is under this false impression that Pete is hooking up with Mary Jane Watson, who Liz has met, but Peter hasn't. But of course, eventually this will turn out to be true that uh, Mary Jane will take Liz's place very much in the sporting cast. But of course, we're about to get a brand new sporting cast when he gets to college, which is fascinating and much to Dicko's credit that he creates a whole great new sporting cast from scratch in just a couple issues. So let's go ahead and move on to Fantastic Four. This one's yours. Fantastic Four number 42. To save you, why must I kill you? The battle you never expected to see. I'm not a big fan of this cover. We've got Ben fighting Reed in the foreground while the rest of the Fantastic Four fight the rest of the Frightful Four in the background. I find Reed to be very awkward here. <laughs> that uh, I usually like it when Ben is stretching Reed into knots, but uh, I find this to be somewhat awkward. Sure. Uh, also, I think one of the reasons you don't like it is it looks like it's George Bell inking it. That could be. It could very well be George. Uh, but I think George Bell is long gone at this point, or George Russo's, uh I guess, I don't know. I don't know what they're using him for at this point, but he hasn't had an inking credit in a while. I assume it's Claude inking the cover. Unfortunately, we do have Claude inking the inside. Well, so once again, this is one of these comics where Stanley and Jack do not get writer artist credit. It just says produced by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Then it says inking Vince Claude, lettering S. Frozen. So this is the way Marvel Comics will be done for all Marvel Comics before too long, where they'll start just saying it's by Stan and Jack, and we're not going to call one the writer and the other artist because that wouldn't be right. This is an early example of that. The Frightful Four has brainwashed the thing to attack the Fantastic Four. Reed is still glued to a board, but then Reed, while glued to the board, balloons up and attacks the entire Frightful Four. Johnny is still in his dowsing machine, but burns his way out of it. He frees Sue. They then get in a big old fight. Finally, Reed tricks Ben into freeing him by tearing apart the board he is glued to. Ben eventually is tired of fighting Reed and crams him into a little metal urn. And 
<laughs> crushes the lid onto the urn. I just love this. I love the way that Kirby draws it. I love him going in there. And then uh, a couple of minutes later, Sue is realizing like, okay, I just have to get away. And then she finds the room that has the urn in it. The urn is bouncing all over the room and you can just feel <laughs> Reed's frustration at being crammed into this metal urn. And it's now become like a Mexican jumping bean and is jumping all around the place. And she is like, okay, clearly that is my husband trapped in a metal urn. I can tell from the way it's jumping all around. And she's like, I have to get this thing off. And she's trying to like create little corkscrew force fields to try to get this thing off. Meanwhile, there's a bit where Medusa is fighting the Human Torch, and she's like talking to him while her hair is sneakily going into another room and turning on a faucet and wetting itself. And I'm like, going, Does, can the hair see? Does she have <laughs> eyes in her hair? Because she is not watching anything going on in this room. You know, maybe she's got feelings in her hair, and so she can feel her way around in there. I don't know. I guess so. Then she wets her hair and whips it at Johnny and knocks him out. The, the Frightful Four decide, hey, well, as long as we have Johnny here, let's go ahead and brainwash him, too. They've got Ben brainwashed. Now they brainwash Johnny, too. Sue finally gets Reed out of his urn. You can feel his relief as he dribbles out. Sue and Reed attack. Reed has the wizard's anti-gravity discs and turns his hands into a slingshot and flings anti-gravity discs at everybody, and everybody goes flying off. But the wizard then says, I'm going to turn the brainwashed Johnny onto Reed and Sue, I guess Reed and Sue have kidnapped Ben, but Ben is still brainwashed, and Johnny is brainwashed, and Johnny attacks him with flame, and then the issue ends on yet another cliffhanger. I don't really feel like this story should have been a three-parter, and really, it was you know two previous stories not long before, so it's really sort of a five-parter. I feel like they are stretching this out too much, especially when we've got other exciting things we want to get to, but this is a fun issue. This is a big battle issue. We have a lot of big fights. I like all eight of these characters and it is fun to watch them fight each other. I have no complaints about, I mean, other than the inking, uh, which could have been much, much better. I don't really have many complaints about this issue myself. You know, I just really feel that this Fantastic Four versus Frightful Four storyline is, like I think I've said before, really where Lee and Kirby have finally hit their final gear. Uh, and at this point, it's just ramping up to when we get Silver Surfer and Galactus and yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. Yeah, just the one thing I wanted to say is that when Sue is trying to get Reed out of the urn, they make it clear that he was just about to suffocate to death. You know, just in time, another few seconds, the last remaining bit of air would have been gone. So she has just literally saved his life and spent every single ounce of energy and power and effort that she had on this effort. She basically passes out from exhaustion from getting it done, but she gets it done. And I, you know, once again... I really like it when they make Sue a lot more self-sufficient and kind of badass. And the fact that she has to rescue Reed here, I really like that. It really comes across nicely. Yeah, I agree. Um, are we ready to move on to the next thing? Let's do it. Let's go on to Thor. Journey into mystery with the mighty Thor. I love, love, love the splash page on this. So when last we saw Thor, he was heading back to Earth. Mjolnir had been damaged. It had had a whole chunk of it sliced off by the Destroyer. And he said, I need to go and get this repaired. So he goes to Pittsburgh and essentially commandeers or at least uh, invites himself into a steel mill to 
presumably fuse Mjolnir back together. And the picture of him holding Mjolnir with some kind of tongs on the first page, wearing the little welder's goggles, and the coloring on this with the yellow and the orange, I just, I mean, Coletta couldn't even ruin this one. Uh, Maybe because you couldn't see his eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Or anyone's eyes. They all have goggles on. So written in the fire of inspiration by Stan Lee, drawn in the flame of dedication by Jack Kirby, inked in the heat of devotion by Vince Coletta, lettered in the other room by Artie Simon. It's very strange that Thor decided to go to Pittsburgh to fix his hammer. Generally speaking in Thor comics, they imply that this is a rather fancy hammer and needs some special care and attention. And (laughs) often, I don't know whether they've ever mentioned Svartalheim yet, but I think it has been mentioned that the hammer was forged for him in Svartalheim. If not yet, then soon. And why did he not return to Svartalheim to go ahead and have it fixed? I do not know, but he decides to go to Pittsburgh, which I guess, you know, at the time there was much more pride in American know-how and industrial might. So I guess uh, he figured, go to America where we have the best manufacturing in the world and nothing will ever change that. <laughs> well, and Stan seems to be on a bit of a kick of that lately. Iron Man recently, he was like, uh, there is what you get when you try to have things built cheaply in some foreign country. And, you know, it's not like we make in America. And, you know, once again, it's just like we live in such different times and in many ways, not better. Uh, so Thor gets his hammer fixed. We have a fantastic Kirby photo collage on the top of page two, where it's just a basically a big photo of the inside of a steel mill, and it looks really nice. Thor tests his hammer, basically shatters a whole column on something, but then Stanley just throws in some dialogue about how, oh, we were about to melt that thing down anyway. Thor then heads off, you know, he's looking at the Norn stones, making sure he has them. He then, when he looks at them, drops one by accident. So it's just left there sitting in the grass in some location on Earth. There are two gigantic bunny rabbits looking at him on the first panel of page four. Those things are huge. <laughs> Thor returns to Asgard, brings the Norn stones, and yeah, I guess he hadn't proven ever anything yet. He had to actually bring them to Odin, so he does. We then see that Loki is still in servitude to the warlock, but of course, that never lasts very long, so he's able to, through subterfuge and treachery, get himself out and subdue the warlock. So then Thor tells Odin, hey, it's all great and everything, but I need to go back to Earth because, you know, I have not attended to my doctor's office in several months at this point. No. And <laughs> so I have not even thought about my other identity or the job that he's supposed to be holding down. It just uh, – Uh, So I I guess I got to get back to that. He shows up at his outside window to his locked office and the window is locked. He cannot get in. And hey, my office is empty. No one is in here. There should be all sorts of patients waiting (laughs) for me who has not been here in months. He thinks the office of Dr. Blake should be filled with waiting patients, waiting month after month for me to show up. (laughs) This is this is the ultimate. Well, I, I wrote a word here. I can't say on our clean podcast. But this is the ultimate a-hole doctor. <laughs> like this is the ultimate. Why don't? Why didn't you wait for me, guy? I feel like we've all known guys like this who are like, dude, why didn't you wait for me? It's like it was months. <laughs> anyway, he is now trying to figure out, like, well, what 
even Jane isn't here. She should be hanging around waiting for me and keeping the office tidy this whole time. You know, <laughs> just, uh, of course she is not. The landlord comes in. He's like, dude, you haven't paid the rent in a while. Blake is just ignoring the guy, uh, sees one of his patients, who's this beautiful woman. She says, oh, no, I'm not going to you anymore. I've been seeing this new charming doctor across the hall. Don Blake gets so frustrated, he whacks his stick against the wall, turning him into Thor. So uh, and then, of course, the landlord comes around the corner. He's like, hey, I was just following Dr. Blake. And I turned the corner and here's Thor instead. Oh, well, where'd he go? <laughs> As like, always. Oh, he just headed down the uh, elevator. So Thor at this point is like, ah, well, I will go see the Avengers. <laughs> and there he is in for another rude surprise as he shows up. And it is occupied by three villains as far as he knows. Now, so- you would think at first in the Avengers issue where Captain America was out of town when the new Avengers formed and showed up and found them, I'm like, OK, so he thinks these are three supervillains. He's going to have a big fight with them now. This is just the easiest type of comic book writing in the world. You know, if you've got a new superhero team that's made up former villains, then every time they run into a hero who does not know about this, they should get in a big fight. And then it's all cleared up as a big misunderstanding. But they failed to do that when Captain America discovered the new villain team in Avengers number 16. And they failed to do it here when Thor discovers the supervillain team. This whole issue should have been Thor versus the new Avengers trying to arrest them for being villains. And it seems like that's low-hanging fruit they could have picked, but they didn't. A lost opportunity. So Thor is like, "Uh, okay, no, um, you guys are not useful to me. I'm just going to head off. Jane, who is in a room with a guy in silhouette behind her, looks kind of ominous, uh, and she's still pining after Dr. Blake. Whoever this is who's talking to her from behind is a man in a suit, clearly says, you must forget him. You must put him out of your life. You have no other choice. Now, does this turn out to be the other doctor that's across the hall? I do not remember. Okay, well, we'll find out soon. Meanwhile, Loki is using the Warlock's lab and his natural powers to find the Absorbing Man again, whom we had last seen drifting out into space as uh, gas, basically. So he's bringing him back to uh, fight Thor. Uh, Thor sees, you know, a French starlet being interviewed on the streets of New York. And he thinks, aha, that's how I will find Jane Foster. I will go ahead and show up on the TV and say, hey, Jane, where are you? But uh, he can't actually get there before the thing that becomes, again, the Absorbing Man comes down to Earth and the Absorbing Man pops out and attacks Thor, uh, having turned himself into... It looks like brick, but it's colored like rock in mine. And the way it's penciled and inked, it looks like his legs are supposed to be absorbing the characteristics of the wood that he's standing on. That looks like splinters and stuff down there. And then his top half is absorbing the brick, but the colorist just made it all gray. Yeah, that's here. That's here, too. But for the first time, we get the sense that his ball and chain also have absorbing powers because he looks like he is made of brick and his ball and chain also looks like it is made of brick now. So no, I it guess doesn't. no, it doesn't look like it's made of brick. It looks like a disco ball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's their way of saying it's made of brick. But yes, maybe maybe his uh, ball and chain has the magic power of turning into a disco ball at any time. <laughs> you know, you might say it's made of brick, but that is clearly a disco ball. 
Yes. I think this is a perfectly fine issue of Thor. I think it's a missed opportunity to have him fight the New Avengers, but it is very good to go ahead and have Thor finally acknowledge the fact that he hasn't been Dunlake in a long time, and he is not even aware of the fact that the Avengers moved on without him a long time ago. You know, I mean, this is exactly what Thor should be doing, is having big epic storylines where he's fighting as Guardians and forgets all about Earth. But occasionally you have to play catch-up, and this is one of the play-catch-up issues, and I'm very glad to have the Absorbing Man back. He's a great villain. This is a good bridging issue between fighting stories. Yes. So, in Tales of Asgard, we're heading back into this whole epic quest that we have begun. And of course, we've been several issues into it, and we haven't even left on the quest yet. (laughs) No. We're just about to head off. But uh, it's somewhat related to the whole Western literary tradition of the arming of the hero. But in this case, it is the uh, outfitting for the journey. In a great splash page, Odin is seeing all of the warriors off in their flying Viking ship. We then see some a great panel of everyone, you know, hoisting the sails, and then this giant flying Viking ship catching the wind and flying out of its dry dock, which is just fantastic. <laughs> we see some beautiful young Asgardian ladies who are seeing them all off. Very rare to see any ladies in Asgard. It's been almost entirely a sausage fest until this point. But except Enchantress. Here we see that several of them have wives and girlfriends. Including, we see for the first time, Falstag's wife. We met Falstag last issue, and now we have Falstag westily waving to the pretty ladies who are saying goodbye to them until he sees his actual wife and tries to flee in fear. Yes, and she is dour, just about as stout as he is, frowning, scowling woman. So. Yes, Sir Walt Simonson will give her more vivaciousness. She yes. will be less of a caricature of a disapproving wife when Walt Simonson writes her and draws her later. Yes. Loki is showing great disrespect to Volstagg. He actually kicks him for not working hard enough. Thor then says to Loki, and I find this interesting, enough, half-brother. No crewman of mine will be treated thus while Thor is in command. They are our fellow warriors, not serfs upon whom you may vent your wrath. So that begs the question, does Asgard have serfs? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it's one of those things where like you know later we find out the inhumans have like this whole enslaved race that they've got it's like wait are we the baddies baddies? (laughs) so one of the bad guys who uh loki has recruited for this voyage is coming up behind thor and is going to try to assassinate him but Hogan the Grim stops them from doing so. So I pointed out last issue that it is my impression that all three of the Warriors Three, as they will eventually become known, uh, were supposed to be implied, should be at least a little bit under suspicion because they were recruited by Loki and they seemed kind of mysterious and one was twirling his mustache. But here it seems that Hogan is a grim, serious warrior who is intent on helping the side of good. So then we end up with a fantastic panel of Odin in his robe, soaking his feet in a soaking (laughs) tub while leaning back on a very cushy, cushioned throne. (laughs) I'd have to say that the footbed seems to be built into the cushy throne. There's like a beanbag built into the throne, and it's got a footbath attached to the bottom of it. And this is his maxin and relaxin throne. It's a modern pedicure chair. It's a modern petty chair. That's true. Yeah, um, I'm glad that our quest has now begun, but I've been having fun this whole time just even getting ready for the quest. So I'm looking forward to more. 
it's awkward to try to cram a whole quest into a series of five issue stories where, okay, you're not going to be making much progress. And indeed, they're not. This whole storyline has been very slow moving, but every chapter we've gotten has been fantastic. So move as slow as you want, because I love The Warriors 3 and I love everything about this story. And I love maxing and relaxing Odin. So keep it coming. <laughs> Yes. So now uh, that we're done with Thor, let's move on to Strange Tales. And this one is yours. Yes, I get to do Strange Tales. This is something we'll discuss more in our next episode, but we have to start dis discussing it here. This is a month in which Stanley is trying a bunch of different penciler-inker combos, and a lot of them don't work. And we're going to talk about, especially in the four books that we're going to cover in our next episode, just a lot of tragedies, a lot of cases of, no, don't pair that inker with that penciler. Uh, that is a waste of both of them. We'll be talking about that for the four books in the next episode and for a lot of books coming up over the next year, unfortunately. Now, we've had this problem with our podcast in that every other episode we like the books and every other episode we don't like the books because of the way the alphabet sorts out. That is unfortunately only going to get worse. There is one case where he brings in a new guy, once again, brings back an old EC guy for an unexpected penciler inker pairing. And he knocks it out of the park. This oh, yeah. is Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Supreme Headquarters, International Espionage Law Enforcement Division, Find Fury or Die, script by the unpredictable Stan Lee, layouts by the unmatchable Jack Kirby, and introducing the latest talented returnee to Mighty Marvel, back from the golden age of comics to the magnificent modern Marvel age, we proudly present that sensational stylist, art by the unbeatable Johnny Severin. Lettering by the unsinkable Artie Simak. So, Jai Severin was one of the main creators at EC, specialized in the war comics and Western comics that EC put out. He has not been here this whole time. And he you know, was primarily a penciler and inker at DC. And now that he's back at Marvel, they'll use him almost entirely as a inker or someone going over layouts here. So, here you've got Kirby just doing layouts and they're giving Severin full art credit for going over the layouts. But it's a very interesting use of Severin. And what it will turn out is that he can ink just about everybody. He inks Dick Ayers over Insurgent Fury and does a great job. They put him over Herb Trimpey, who you would think he would be a terrible combo with, who is a very Kirby-inspired penciler over in Hulk. And Trimpey-Severin turns out to be a fantastic combination. I don't know. That and, sounds like that would be great to me. But <laughs> so that's not surprising that that combination be great to me. But one way or the other, that's years in the future. Yeah, it's about two years in the future. Johnny Severin turns out to be someone who can ink anybody and make them look good, even though he has a very unique style himself. He can merge it with other people shockingly well. And this is an absolutely fantastic book. I really enjoyed Nick Fury's first issue, last issue. And this second story is even better thanks to the addition of Johnny Severin. Nick Fury is walking along through the streets of New York and he is being spied on by various people in Hydra. We have a gorgeous splash page of as Nick Fury is walking along, we are seeing someone from Hydra surveilling him and we are seeing his reflection in the gigantic lens of the thing that is surveying him. As someone who aspired to write spy things and almost sold a spy show to HBO back in the day and learned a lot about spies and a lot about fictional spies, and the number one thing you learn about when you study actual spies and fictional spies is that fictional spies are awful. They are awful <laughs> at what they do. 
And sure enough, we have Nick Fury engaging in truly terrible tradecraft here. He knows he's being followed. He knows he's being surveilled. And he goes to the actual headquarters of S.H.I.E.L.D., where they have a barbershop that is the secret entrance to the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. He goes ahead and leads Hydra right there, but then hands over his hat to the shoeshine, I will not say shoeshine boy, because this is an African-American, hands it to the shoeshine man and says, next two customers from Hydra use caution. We see that there's a bald-headed dude who is in charge of this operation for Hydra. We do get to see, of course, him walking through a room full of training commandos, which is always fun. So Hydra, obviously, is sort of a combination of Thrush from Man from Uncle and Spectre from James Bond. This is very much like the second James Bond movie from Rush With Love, where they've got the room full of training goons, later memorably parodied in Wayne's World. <laughs> when uh, in Wayne's <laughs> World, he's like, I've just always wanted to open a door on a room full of training ninjas. And so he does and says, OK, thanks. Fury goes to the actual secret entrance to S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. The Hydra goons coming after him. But then the lady who runs the nail salon, uh, the lady who runs the pedicure table, then hits a device to shackle the Hydra agent to the pedicure table. And the man who runs the shoeshine stand hits a button to shackle the Hydra agent to the shoeshine stand. Fury, a little late, uh, hits him with a hypno gun. I've been itching to try out this new hypno beam that Section W developed for us hypnotizes them into saying, like, now go back and tell all the Hydra people, no, that isn't S.H.I.E.L.D.'s headquarters. S.H.I.E.L.D.'s headquarters is down the street in that warehouse. Which, first of all, like, even letting them know the general block of your headquarters is still a bad idea. <laughs> Fury, now this is something, though, a lot of artists will have a lot of fun with over the years. Turns out you just park yourself in one of the barber chairs and you pull the little jack on the side and then it lowers you down into the floor into S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. And... They get a great thing. So I've been watching the Mission Impossible movies in preparation for the new Mission Impossible movie coming out. So the Mission Impossible TV series had not begun yet at this point. This was inspired by Man from Uncle and James Bond. It was not inspired by Mission Impossible, which had started. But you've got a finale here, which is very similar to the sort of finales they would do on Mission Impossible and very similar to the finale of the movie Mission Impossible 5 when they trap Sullivan Lane in a glass case when they have him under the streets. And you get a very similar thing here where Hydra raids this warehouse and suddenly all these walls fall into place and they're trapped. And then a bunch of thick, sticky fluid goes onto the floor and catches them like flypaper. And then they're like, oh, we'll just break out the windows. And they find that outside the windows is a double wall with a street scene merely painted on the outer section. Then it's over. Shield is one. And of course, we see that the bald goon who is in charge of finding this whole thing gets killed by... Hydra and Fury feels like he's gotten away with something here, but really you let Hydra know the correct block that they were on. So uh, you've given them way too much, but it is a tremendously fun comic and just gorgeous art by Kirby and Severin. They're very much predicting the sort of fun they will be having soon on Mission Impossible and the sort of fun they were already having. And I should point out in Man from Uncle, they just have a random storefront that is the secret entrance to their headquarters on that show so this is very much pulling from that this is just a tremendously fun issue yeah you know i will reiterate that when i heard oh john severin inking jack kirby on shield i'm just like wow that sounds like a really unwise combo when you put them together and these are 
I think they're together for like three issues or so with Kirby doing layouts and Severin doing finished art. And they are some of my favorite stories in the Marvel Silver Age, like outside of the Galactus thriller and, you know, a couple of the the iconic ones. These are three of my favorite underrated forgotten gems uh, in here. Just the art is so fantastic. But yeah, just the sort of very textured old-fashioned look of Severin's finished art you would think would not work on a high-tech spy thriller and probably wouldn't work over Kirby generally. It does. It does. Yeah. When they sort of transitioned the war books into being Western books in EC, he was someone who especially specialized in Westerns. Uh, you know, I think he was primarily associated as a Western artist, and this could not be further from that. And it's so sleek and perfectly fits in the spy genre. I love it. I find it notable that in this false front with the barbershop, they have these two uh, employees, so-called, who uh, are specifically there to be people who would just melt into the background to folks, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And that here, it's like, no, they are both highly trained secret agents, and they are taking advantage of folks not taking women and black men seriously. So they're able to then use that to their advantage to get the drop on the baddies. So yes. I find that interesting. Yeah, it is. It is great. It is a fantastic issue. Okay, let's go and move on to the back of the issue. What works beneath the mask? Doctor Strange, Master of the Mysticars, edited and written by Mystical Magical Stanley, plotted and illustrated by Weird Wonder Steve Dicko. So Dicko getting pot credit and doing a fantastic job with the potting, we see that Dormammu has figured out that Cleo was the one who released the mindless one, so he grabs her. Again, no mention of the fact he had promised not to do that. Dormammu is yelling at Baron Mordo. Baron Mordo is contacting his goons all around the world, searching for Doctor Strange. We see Doctor Strange is searching for clues about eternity. Absolutely gorgeous deco art of various cities around the world. Gorgeous oh, yeah. art of Strange in the Middle East. We then see someone who is even more ancient than the ancient one, someone named the Aged Genghis, a character who will come back later again when Roger Stern is writing the book. He's like, oh, yes, I think I know about eternity. Here is an eternity scroll. Read this. I think it'll tell you what you need to know. So then Strange reads the scroll, opens up the mystic portal, goes in. Mordo then shows up and is like, oh, there's Strange. I can attack him. It's like, no, he's gone. Uh, look, Dormammu, he read from this scroll and disappeared. And Dormammu's like, oh, my God, that scroll's going to kill him. We don't even have to deal with him now because uh, he read from the wrong scroll. Cuts to Doctor Strange, who shows up in a fantastical dimension. As always, Dicko doing an amazing job with fantastical dimensions. This one has these bizarre totem poles of eerie of eerily good masks always something to watch out for when you run into those things in literature is totem pole for something that is not actually a pacific northwest indigenous artifact a term that we should really be using at this point noted so then uh, dr strange finds what seems to be oh some victim of this reality who is chained up to the wall and blindfolded with a big metal blindfold i'll help him i'll rescue him well it turns out he's a crazy madman who was locked up for a reason as soon as he turns his eyes on dr strange he switches places with dr strange now he is wearing dr strange's clothes dr strange is hooked up to the machine he then covers dr strange's face in green goop which is going to make a mask out of dr strange so that he will be able to control him 
But Doctor Strange is getting better and better issue after issue in being able to control his cloak when he is not wearing it. And so this guy is now wearing Doctor Strange's cloaks because they switch clothes. And he then has the cape beat him up and whip him all around the room. And it looks great. And you can really get a sense, you know. Now, obviously, in the MCU, they could do just a wonderful job with giving the cape its own personality better than they could generally do in the comics because movies are better than that, uh, especially modern CGI movies. But here, Dicko is really doing it. Dicko is giving a wonderful sense of the personality of the cape and the cape coming alive. Then the cape manages to peel the mask off of Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange switches back out with the dude. Now, here you get something interesting. Doctor Strange then somehow summons all of the victims of the masks before to attack this guy. And everybody turns on him. Doctor Strange, again, turns on his light really bright, which I he says, no, no more. I cannot bear it. I never like it when his you know, just turning up the brightness of the light sort of wins the day for him. But he banishes the guy to another dimension. And then when we just saw all of these victims of the guy were here attacking the guy. And then Dr. Strange says, now that I've banished the guy, I will destroy the entire dimension, (laughs) which he does. (laughs) This world of yours is so evil, so foul that I now understand why the ancient one tried to destroy all knowledge of it. But now under the light of justice, under the rays of the all seeing eye, it can no longer endure. And so it shall vanish to return nevermore. I'm like, weren't there a bunch of victims right there, dude? (laughs) Didn't you just destroy them? I guess between panels, he sent them all home to their home dimensions. That's the kind of thing that Lee would usually sneak in a little sentence about (laughs) saying, now, after returning them whence they came, (laughs) I shall destroy the dimension. But uh, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Finally, Doctor Strange decides, you know, we've had a couple of issues of him investigating eternity and not making progress, but he decides he's going to have to escalate things next issue. The only way he can find about eternity is to go inside the mind of the Ancient One. I must dare if we are to survive. And that is where the issue ends on another big escalation in the epic, which is, you'll recall what I didn't like about last issue, that it didn't have a big escalation at the end. This one does. And this is an absolutely fantastic issue, another great issue in the ongoing epic, another great escalation of it, and another great little self-contained adventure to have as the epic is going on, and absolutely gorgeous. And the final panel of this story is really just uh, (laughs) an understated masterpiece with Dr. Strange sitting there in a uh, dark room with just a lamp and hanging his head in weariness. So yes. uh, just a couple things to mention. Yes, I was going to point out just how beautiful that Middle Eastern city is there with all the uh, lattice work that's casting moonlight shadows downward. It looks really great. On page five, panel four, <laughs> at one point, the caption refers to Doctor Strange as a necromancer which usually I think of as somebody who is doing magic upon the dead, like yeah. someone who's you know creating zombies or something like that. But I looked it up, and apparently necromancer is sometimes used just to refer to a sorcerer. So, okay, that jumped out at me. But when he's looking at that scroll that the ancienter one gave to him, <laughs> I noticed just the stuff around in that monastery or temple or whatever it is he's in is just amazing like a big ruined statue of some humanoid demon or something like that and you see this big ditko-esque hand that's broken and uh stone just sitting in front of him and then you know you see more of that down at the bottom 
bottom of page five after Mordo shows up. It's just, I mean, uh, uh, Ditko, you're just, you're putting shame in everyone's game here, <laughs> you know, and the columns of heads, uh, you know, just another freaky otherworldly image that is unlike all of the other freaky unworldly images that we've seen before. We are not worthy. <laughs> Indeed, we aren't. Okay, so let's uh, go for the uh, splash page where you see the demon dressed up in Doctor Strange's clothes. He has especially Kobe fingers. Those are as <laughs> a lot of fingers that look like Dicko fingers, but these are some of the most Dicko looking fingers you're ever going to see. So that is the end of this episode. So unfortunately, I was hoping things would decrease in terms of having four great books followed by four weaker books, but who boy, it does not this month. So we have started with <laughs> one thing we'll discuss in the next episode is I think this month may be peak Vince Galetta in the Marvel Universe. We've got a tremendous amount of Vince Galetta this month, and that's already started with the first half because he's doing Fantastic Four and Thor and Tales of Asgard, but he's not ruining those books as much as he could. And all four of these books, all six of these stories uh, that we covered in this episode are pretty great. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody. When you hear us again next week, I will have a report back from Heroes Convention in Charlotte that I was at a couple weeks ago. Fantastic. Okay. See everybody soon. Bye. Take care. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.